Hey everyone, welcome back to D&J's Epic Quest. My name is Justin, or Soft Pillows, and this is... This is Derek, or Bird That Steals. It's good to be back, man. Yeah, it is good to be back. Um, first and foremost, thank you to everybody uh, for being patient. Uh, I am moved in. I have spent the last week um, going back and forth from my new place to my old place cleaning grabbing extra little piddly things here and there we finally finished cleaning the old house today dropped off the keys and like the garage door opener so it's uh it's 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 hard to believe that we you know last week at this time we were moving out so it's literally been like a week-long process i am exhausted but it's good to be back doing this so it, ha- it is good to be back is yeah we were just talking and yeah it's been roughly a month since we've sat down to do this and it's at least on my end it's it's felt like a lot longer than that because i've i've missed doing it with you you're not wrong it it, it the feeling is mutual uh <laughs> i've definitely been aching to get back to it and the other day when i was writing the summaries for this episode you know, it felt good to be able to like, you know, sit down and, and break down the book again because this was a chapter that I definitely enjoyed summarizing. Yeah, and, and a lot happened too. So, yes, a lot does happen. But um, I mean, I guess outside of my my busy ass week, how have you been, dude? Um, busy as well. Um, working two jobs. I had a, I think. Well, yeah, it hasn't been that long, but I played in a hockey tournament a couple or weekend or two ago, and my hockey season starts up here on Wednesday, so I'll be playing Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, and then uh, college hockey season is starting up here pretty soon, and I will be helping with that in some capacity um, with the uh, women's college hockey team. Usually, I do the scoring for that, so uh, I... And then, you know, doing this and family stuff. So it's, I'm going to be going 10,000 different directions here. Dang. How, uh, how did your little tournament fare? How'd you guys do? Uh, oh, in the hockey tournament? Yeah. Um, so it was for the Echo Food Shelf, our local food shelf, um, raising money and, and food donations for that. Um, and uh, so last year I played in it as well. And we raised like, we were just short of $16,000 this year. We raised $28,000 and I'm not sure how much food. So it was a huge jump. Um, and it's, it's kind of, there are six teams. You don't play everybody. Um, but I had, me and my dad were not on the same team. My dad played in it too. And I got to play my dad in the last game and whoever won that game won the championship. So uh, we finished, we won our first game, tied our second game, and then I lost my last game to my dad. So, <laughs> was he rubbing it in your face? No, he wasn't. It, it was oh, a lot of fun. Um, we lost two to one. We scored a goal with like 10 seconds left in the game. So, it was kind of meaningless. But they had the, the goalie on my dad's team was probably the best goalie in the tournament. And uh, I mean, we had a lot of chances, and he just, we couldn't get anything by him. Damn. Damn. Sounds fun, though. 
Yeah, it was a good time. So I'm I'm looking forward to our season starting up here and playing consistently. So it's uh, there's seven teams in the league that I play in, and so you play twice a week, you know, and then one team, the one team that doesn't play, they run the clock and stuff. So you're involved basically in some capacity every week. And um, it's a lot of fun. We play like 42 games and then we have playoffs and that's a double elimination. So you get at least two games in the playoffs. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good, dude. Uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for you. Hopefully one of these days I can down, come down and we can, and watch you play uh well i mean it's not any high quality level of hockey by any means it's a bunch of adults it's basically it's a beer league <laughs> sunday morning entertaining you have a, a sunday morning game at seven o'clock in the morning or six o'clock in the morning and then you're done and you're sitting out in the parking lot having a beer so sounds like a good time to me that's not too bad all right well that's good i'm glad you're doing well things are moving i guess yeah things are good um i know I, I talked to you i took my my daughter we went to uh pride festival today it's the first time i've been to one so it was definitely different for me kind of eye-opening but my daughter had a ton of fun and was with a lot of friends so it was good that's good where was that at uh the parade was just down uh riverfront drive in mankato and then which you're familiar with and then uh, Riverfront Park is kind of where they had they had uh, music and there's a drag show going on and I think that was probably uh, scaled back a little bit to be more family friendly. <laughs> I imagine those can get kind of I'm not sure what the right word was it for, but this was pretty tame to how I imagine they could be. Yeah, I I guess I've never been. Uh, it was my first, also. Well, well. What do you say we get into uh, episode 22, uh, chapter 21 of Gardens of the Moon here? Sure. Um, do we maybe, uh, I'm going to make this announcement here, I guess. Um, we, we have our next guest for our next side quest episode lined up. Uh, we will have at a time to be de- determined, uh, Matt joining us from the Queers of Time podcast. Uh he, like you and I, lives in Minnesota, and uh, we'll be discussing the Wheel of Time TV show season one at at uh, some point. So, still kind of working that out, but that will be coming eventually. I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited. Should be for a good that. time. Yeah. Should we? Do we? Do you want to take our epigraph here? Sure, I can take it here. All right, chapter 21. The flowering of light from darkness brought into my sight there on the field a host of dragons caught like a crest of wind before the eternal flame. I saw the ages in their eyes, a worldly map inscribed in each world scaled on their hides. Their sorcery bled from them like the breathing of stars, and I knew then that the dragons had come among us. And we will move right into section one here. Lauren planted the finnest. Life's the garden and she's digging it. She could hear the servants making preparations at the last minute. I assume for the fets at uh, Lady Simtal's estate. She had an easy way in and out 
Uh, and Allie was at the other side of the back, uh, trees overgrowing and overhanging it. So she was able to climb the wall easily. As she landed on the other side, she walked to the end of the alley and watched people pass on the street. She had two jobs before she left Darujistan, kick ass and chew bubble gum, and she was all out of bubble gum. Actually, one of the tasks may stay unfinished. She needed to find Sari, but she could not sense her, so she may actually be dead. Lauren seems to go into a bit of a panic attack. She slides down the wall to sit. Before long, the intersections of the city would explode and many would die instantly and many more in the hours to follow. She'd seen this all play out before. She knew all their faces and voices. They were all the same, insignificant in the end. She knew one day she would be among them. She shook herself out of her feelings and told herself there was no sense in hiding. She had one job left that she knew she could do. Find the coin bearer and kill him. Take the coin. Make the god pay for interfering with the Empress's plans. She needed to concentrate. She focused on the coin bearer's signature. Uh, must be like a magical signature of sorts. Uh, as she disappeared into the crowd in the streets, she heard thunder to the east. This is not weather for a storm. She thought that death from failure was not an option. As she walked, she said, the adjunct's mission is almost done. Do you get the sense of, like, Lauren potentially possessing PTSD here? I hadn't thought about it that way, but that is, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, I. I kind of get the sense that it was just, I guess like regret was kind of the word that popped into my mind, but I like PTSD. Like, yeah. She's definitely seems damaged by this. Well, right. Because, you know, she's comparing it to, you know, many sites that she's seen before. So, you know, I guess my question is, is like, did she have these feelings, you know, uh, in other situations similar to this or is this just is it really just all of the things that Tool had said to her that has just really got her thinking more than she used to I I think it must because you know all we we kept hearing how I guess like emotionless she was and cold hearted and all this or that and um, you know through the pages that we've seen with Lorne she's kind of softened a little bit. It seems, you know, letting these, these feelings in, you know, regret, remorse, um, and just kind of thinking about what she's done. So I, maybe just kind of the grind, you know, doing the city after city, it's maybe finally getting to her. And then, you know, like you said, tools, words, maybe it's a combination of those things. I mean, I guess, how do you feel, about Lauren and her character arc uh, as the adjunct of the Empress. Like, do you see this biting her in the ass? Do you see her maybe uh, switching sides? Um, you know, I mean, it's got it, the character arc is there and it's beautiful. Like, I like, I kind of like the way that Lauren is, is headed based on where I'm thinking it may go, but, you know, I guess there may be others who feel differently. So, I mean, what are, what do you think about her character arc as the, 
the adjunct of the empress is is her current situation kind of putting her position on the line or what do you think i don't know i as as a a character i guess i i don't really have strong feelings towards lauren at all um she doesn't feel that like there's just not a, a lot of emotion there for me for her so just gotcha. kind of like I, I don't know that i'd really care whatever happens to her to be honest <laughs> um so she like an ocelot nah no ocelot was just a dick <laughs> uh lauren's just kind of i guess another face in the crowd i guess you know gotcha just kind of there for me um i do think that you know like the there are things that i have enjoyed you know in in her parts of the book you know with the otateral sword and and like and not necessarily just like the fighting sequences but just like that type of background but just i guess kind of as a character i don't find her terribly interesting gotcha okay i mean would you say that from the beginning of the book to where we are now like change slightly or not at all like my view or lauren as a character yeah just your view as of lauren as a character i i would say it's changed i mean i guess kind of whenever i'm reading a book you know you're you're getting to know these characters so i'm always trying to you know find a connection with them and um, you know, you're always interested to read about them right away. And then just kind of as things went on, the, the things that are interesting to me about her are, you know, the feelings that she has that, you know, I want to see that conflict with that she has with herself, you know, like where she's wondering if she's doing the right thing yeah. or not, you know, like, so that's, that's what I'm interested to see. But when she just kind of like bears down and says, nope. I got to do this because it's just what I'm supposed to do. Like that's, it's not very interesting to me. So I've just got, you know, like as it's gone on, we get some of that, I feel like, but when she just pushes it down, it's, it's just, I don't know. I lose interest quick in that. I want, I want to see her have that conflict with herself. I kind of repeating wanna, myself there, but no, you want, but you I definitely, I, I definitely have seen change. I would agree. It's it's hard to connect with Lauren because her actions I don't agree with. But I have like I feel for her at the same time, you know, just kind of like wondering, you know, if this is what I should be doing or what she should be doing. Like, you know, putting myself in her shoes. I can kind of feel for her a little bit. Yeah, I get you. I mean, that's because that's exactly what I do when I'm, you know, reading books, too, is I'm trying to put myself in, you know, in the character's shoes and see things through their eyes. And, um, you know, obviously, we have a different point of view at that point. So you're like, oh, well, I would have done this. Right? But would you have? I mean, if you were in that situation, you don't know all this other stuff that as a reader, we know. Right. Yeah. Right. I just think it's interesting. Outside of Lorne you know, burying the finest and, you know, her PTSD episode. I just, 
And this goes beyond just the section. This really is just kind of the entire chapter. But in my mind, everything was just so beautifully vivid. You know, like I can just imagine Lauren in this garden uh, and she's just digging a hole for this finest, you know, and you kind of just overhear people in the background, you know, dishes clattering, cooks yelling, you know, like I just it was. It was just very well done. Um, so I liked I liked that. Yeah, I guess, you know, that would, there was a pretty good line right at the beginning of this. You know, one of the first few sentences, you know, it's, I think it was like, find an acorn plant that, you know, she kind of thought to herself. And, and then, you know, just kind of thinking about it, you're like, man, I mean, she's doing a pretty fucking terrible thing, you know, by bringing the finest to the city because... The tide's gonna come to the city and just wreck everybody's day and kill everything. And she does it anyways. I mean, she's maybe having I don't I don't I don't feel like she thinks like what she's doing is wrong. Even though like she's like you said, having like this little PTSD episode. I don't think it's because she's like, well, like this whole city's fucked and it's because of me. Mm-hmm. Very true. That's a good point, but I mean, we know that that they're they have plans to blow up some intersections in Jerusalem. But on top of that, she's burying the fucking finest right in the middle of you know what I would assume Lady Simtel's garden. You know, Rayest is gonna look for this. He knows where it is. Yeah, like, yeah. like it's just interesting to kind of. Like, no plan is really stated to the reader, but just through their actions, you're kind of, you're able to understand what it is that, you know, uh, quote unquote, was the plan. Right. At least as far as Lauren is concerned. It'll be interesting to see, be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. I mean, I think what would drive me crazy is if, like, they end the book on a damn cliffhanger. You know, like Reyes just starts dominating, dominating Jerusalem and book one, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like. Yeah, that would, that would suck. Reiterate me. But I mean, yeah. I guess the good thing is, is like we don't, you know, this book wasn't just released. Like we have the second one immediately on hand. So. Yeah, know. there's we don't really we're not going to have like downtime or anything. No, no. But I'm excited to move on to Dead House Gates, though. Like I'm, I'm pumped. I'm super anxious to get started <laughs> with that one. Agreed. You know, because you you get so used to a book, right? And then like it ends, and then you move on to the next one, and it's like it's kind of like starting over, but not really. So you know, you're so familiar with the way that the the author writes, and you know the characters and whatnot, but you have no idea what you're getting into. You know, until yeah. you start reading it. So I'm excited for that part. It'll be a good uh, continuation of this world. Right, exactly. But yeah, I don't know about you, but I don't really have anything else to add to this first section. No, let's uh, let's move on. Yeah, I know that this chapter was was filled with a lot of perspectives, and I don't think either one of us had a really sh- like terribly long sections like it actually went by really quick even though there's a ton of sections yeah yeah there was 19 in total i believe how long did it take you to do all of yours 
Um, probably an hour and a half ish. Okay. Yeah, mine was about two and a half, two and a half, three hours, I think. But yeah. I was multitasking, so. Well, I suppose yeah, you were at work. Yeah, I had some downtime. Ooh, there you go. Take advantage of it. Yeah. Right. All right. Next section. Krupp rose from the table he was sitting at in the Phoenix Inn. He struggled to button his jacket, but hey, at least it was clean. Krupp had sat at the table in a near-empty bar for the last hour. At first glance, it would appear that Krupp was merely existing. But in his head, a pattern formed, born of his talent. Irilta and Mies losing Krakus and the girl had brought everything into focus. The coin might be gambled in a single contest, and to have the coin floating around indefinitely would be dangerous. Krupp rejects this thought and turns to a new one. Krakus would find his luck abandoning, abandoning him, and it would most certainly cost Krakus his life. Krupp couldn't let that happen. But the pattern of success was elusive to him. He felt certain that he covered all the potential threats to Krakus, or rather, someone was doing a good job protecting Krakus. That much the pattern did show Krupp. Circle Breaker had come through again. Krupp was confident that Turban Orr's hunt for Circle Breaker would be fruitless. The eel knew how to take care of his own, and Circle Breaker was due for retirement. And Krupp was going to deliver that news at Lady Simitel's fete tonight. The pattern did also tell him something he already knew. That his cover was blown. The spell on Marilia wouldn't last much longer, but Krupp wanted un unimpeded freedom for the day. The only thing that gave Krupp pause was the pattern suddenly ending. Beyond tonight, the future was blank. He knew that a crux had been breached and it would turn tonight at the Fete. Krupp now entered the higher estates district. The Fete was to begin in 30 minutes, and he planned on being the first one there. He drooled at the thought of all the sweet smells and tasty food. He pulled his mask out from his coat and smiled at it. Of all those attending, Master Baruch would appreciate the irony of his mask. Krupp's stomach grumbled in answer to his thoughts of the food. Didn't he just get done eating? Well, he's a I mean, I would little fucked, so... I mean, I would assume, uh, you know, based on the whole, he struggled to button his jacket, but that may not necessarily mean that he had a meal. Uh, that's just what I'm assuming, but I mean, it's Krupp. We all know he ate stuff. Life is just his uh, buffet. <laughs> right, right. We should open up a buffet called Krupp. No one would get it. Not many people, I think. You're right. <laughs> not, not at all. Might be a couple. I'm, uh, I'm assuming the whole, you know, sentence in this section where he was like, "Circle Breaker" had come through again. I'm assuming this, you know, accolade is for Circle Breaker's ability to take the shift for the older guard. You remember that? Yeah, he's like, "I'll, I'll owe you one." Yeah, so, but I mean, I don't know, I guess, I feel like Circle Breaker really doesn't do much, though. Like, we know he just stands at Despot Barbican and just, like, observes things, but, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. You know, like, the, the this is a little bit different train of thought than what you're talking about, but 
you know, when they said uh, Krupp or the Eels thinking that Circle Breaker is due for retirement, all I could think of was that they're like, oh, they're going to like kill him? Like, is that what they mean by retiring him? Ooh, like, are they really, really, really going to send him off to some castle somewhere with his, you know, his own little plot of land? Like, I don't know. I feel like that seems kind of shifty. Maybe that's what it is, but like, that's, that's kind of where my mind went. Like, I, I, you know, yeah. Can you, can yeah. you trust that? Maybe not in, in that moment. No, no, but I mean, I guess it does say in the section that he was going to write him a letter or that he was going to deliver the news tonight. So I would assume that you're not going to tell somebody that they're going to die. Well, and right. Then, no. So, but I mean, maybe I, you know, it's a different world. Maybe that's how they do it. Like you get a letter and you're told that you're, you have to die. And it's like meeting at the playground after school, you know, like you just have to show up. No, I, I think you're right. Yeah. They're not going to be like, Hey, we're going to kill you. But like, <laughs> maybe that's just like, uh, you know, it's, that's just like the code, like, code speak like hey you're gonna you're going to retirement but actually you know because you know all these secrets so you're actually just gonna die (laughs) right yeah yeah i think the only other thing that i can add to the section was i really i really love that like we get a sense of krupp's head like i know that we've had we've had dreams like we're you know as a reader we're you know, essentially along with Krupp while he's dreaming. But I can't say that we've ever gotten like an insight as to what is happening inside of his head regarding his talent when he's not sleeping. You know, it's usually like told to us indirectly between conversations with Krupp and other members like Baruch or Marilio or uh, Ralic, etc. You know, um, but it was it was really cool to just kind of like, you know, it, it's identified as being a pattern. Like, Krupp is able to see patterns. And what is really freaking him out is that the pattern has suddenly stopped. So therefore, he knows that something is coming to an end. Whether that's Crocus and the, uh, the coin bearer. Or, you know, whatever whatever may be happening, you know. So that's kind of where we're in this section. They're like, beyond tonight, the future was blank. And that was, that's essentially what told him that something would turn tonight at the Fete. I guess when, when I was reading... When I was reading that, you know, where, to me it was almost just like a blank canvas. You know, they've got they've got a chance to, you know, try and, and influence things the way that they want to get the outcome that they want. But I mean, you're right. Something's, something's definitely going to change. Something's, you know, going to end one way or another, but it's, to me, it seems like they've got a say in the matter. Right. Yeah. I like that. That was good. If that makes any sense to you. No, that, no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, like they still have the ability to, you know, do what they can, you know, to stop what it is that, you know, with the information that they already know. And that is Crocus and the, you know, him being a basically a tool of the gods. 
a god, rather. But yeah, those are the only things that that I had about uh, this section. I did not have anything else to add either. If you want to bleed on to sec- the next section here. All right. Uh, probably one of the shorter ones of, of the many that we have, but Crocus looks to the east, and on the third day, he sees Gandalf and Aomer. Just kidding. He sees what appears to be lightning of some sort, each strike landing a little closer than the last. The thunder that was heard sounded wrong, while the clouds in the sky looked sick. Absalar asked when they were leaving. Crocus said they would leave now. It was dark enough. She asked what he would do if Chalice betrayed him again. He said to trust him and that she would not. But he did tell her that if she'd hit the fan to go to the Phoenix Inn, find Meese, Iralta, or Krupp, or even Murillo, tell them what happened. Absalar agrees. Crocus wishes he had a lantern. And Absalar says that she can see just fine and takes his hand to lead him. He thought it would be hard to let go even if he wanted. Feeling her hand in his, he could feel the calluses on hers, a reminder of what he knew she was capable of. Blind as he was in the dark, Absalar led Crocus down the stairs. I really loved the way that the storm in the east was described. Like, it's almost kind of like in to those characters and from that perspective, it's like an unknown tension because Crocus is, you know, he's, it's a storm to him visually, but it doesn't feel like a storm. And the way that it was described, you know, it had these eerie ochre, which is kind of like a, like a really gross looking orange and yellow type of color clouds that Crocus was seeing. Um, You know, we as the readers know that it's the Jag Hut, but it just, the level of subliminal tension, I guess, or subconscious tension is just beautiful to start out the section. You know, you really get a sense of that tension that you've been feeling probably for the last three or four chapters, but more kind of the characters are now starting to feel it even though they don't really know what it is yet. Yeah, I, I was. I just kept thinking, like, why is nobody more concerned about this storm that's coming? Like, we keep hearing about how weird and odd it looks, and they're like, eh, fuck it. We're just going to do our thing. Right. I mean, I would imagine that there are a few that do know uh, what is coming, but... Yes, you're, yeah, you're 100% right. But like the the common folk or whatever you want to call them, you know, just the everyday normal guys, like like oh, it's just a storm, guys. Like, yeah, but it looks weird. I don't like, know. You, when, if you saw like some weird ass guy, wouldn't you be like kind of like, well, maybe we we better get inside and get to the basement or you know whatever you know. We should probably prepare for this a little bit. That's not what you do, Derek. You go to a party. You go to a fete when there's a huge storm that looks weird. Well, in the Midwest, we just stand outside the front door and look. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Kids, get in the basement. I'm going to watch this. Yeah. 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 I remember when I was younger and we had 
you know, tornadoes in, in southern Minnesota there. That's exactly what my dad would do. He'd be like, you need to get in the basement. I'm like, why aren't you coming? I want to watch a storm. <laughs> okay, dad. Yeah. And now I do it, okay. you know. That's, yeah. It's come full circle. <laughs> right. Um, do you, uh, the whole hand-holdy thing with Crocus here, do you think that he has some type of feelings for Absalar? I mean, this whole time he kind of gives us the the impression that he's annoyed with her, but the the whole hand and being on the you know the thought of letting go was harder than he you know he wanted. So you think that there's maybe some I don't know some sexual tension there? Maybe I, it's. It, I guess to me, it reads a little bit, you know, especially in this case, as some vulnerability, you know, he, for whatever reason, Absalar can see just fine. And, you know, maybe, like you said, he, it would be hard to let go, even if he wanted to, you know, if he did let go, he's, he's blind. He, he's not going to know where he's going. And so he's, sure. I think he doesn't want to depend on her, but right now he, he has to, there's not really much of a choice. That was way more deeper than just getting his dick wet. So I appreciate that. That was good. That was very insightful. I have my moments. <laughs> I mean, okay. Is there something here with the whole being able to see in pitch darkness? Is that like a remnant of Cotillion? Or I don't, I don't know. You know? Yeah, I'm like a... why, why is she able to do that? I mean, I, I don't know anything about fishing, but I mean... If you fish at dark, you know, at the nighttime to, you know, a nocturnal. I have no fucking idea. But, you know, I, I feel like it's a possibility that her and her dad were, you know, they were fishers. They lived off of a coast. I can only imagine that sometimes they went out at night and looked at fish. And so maybe or tried to catch fish, fish, fish. So maybe like her eyes are just more accustomed to darker environments i mean i i don't know maybe she ate a lot of carrots too i heard that was a myth i'm sure it is <laughs> no i did that too when i was younger and i'm like i don't want glasses so i just ate carrots well, i'm glad it worked for you it didn't for me oh no i have contacts i just glasses always make my eyes look like they're cross-eyed I don't know oh. what it is. It's just like they're too close to like the inside of the frame. So I just wear contacts. Gotcha. But yeah, I mean, that's those are the only comments I had for section three there or for that section. Yeah, I think we got it covered. We, I think we are good to move on. Captain Stillis, captain of the guard for Lady Simital's estate, looked at Whiskey Jack and his men in distaste. Poking a finger in Trot's chest, he angrily addresses Trot's and confesses that his assumption was that Trot's and his crew were all bargassed. Seeing Trot's growl at Captain Stillis, Whiskey Jack steps in and assures Captain Stillis that if they were, in fact, all bargassed, the price tag would be so much higher than it is. Getting straight to the point, Whiskey Jack asks Captain Stillis where he would like his men stationed. Stillis tells Whiskey Jack that they are to be stationed at the fountain with their backs towards the garden. 
Stolas doesn't want any guests to get lost in the gardens, and Whiskey Jack and company are to gently steer them away. Whiskey Jack acknowledges this and takes a quick survey for his crew. Takes a quick survey of his crew. Fiddler and Hedge were eager, and just past them, Quick Ben and Mallet were having a conversation. When Captain Stillis was out of the line of sight, Whiskey Jack approaches Quick Ben and Mallet. Whiskey Jack asks what is wrong. Quick Ben almost looked frightened. Mallet was the one who, to respond and tells Whiskey Jack that it's, it's no storm and that Paran's story was real. Whiskey Jack responds by telling them that there is little time. He asks Mallet why Lauren isn't there and wonders if she is getting out of Dodge. Quick Ben pipes in and tells Whiskey Jack that the creature out there is in a fight. Massive sorceries out there, and being that it's getting closer, it means that it's winning. Before Quick Ben could finish, Whiskey Jack interjects and says that they are all in trouble. He tells crew, his crew to stick to the plan. He asks Quick Ben if he's sure that Paran and Kalam will be able to find them. Quick Ben tells him that the directions have been delivered. Whiskey Jack says good. And they should roll out. I don't know so that I, think I really have much to add to your summarizing there. Oh, yeah, it was a, I don't know, a transitional section, I think. But the only thing that I've, I find interesting is there, there is a small connection between the section and Lauren's section at the beginning. And if Whiskey Jack and company would have arrived sooner, do you think that it's possible that they would have had an encounter with Lauren? And do, does Whiskey Jack know about Lauren having the finest. My guess is they don't. I had not thought about that at all, but I think I would follow your thinking. I agree yeah. with you. Yeah. I think I don't think that Whiskey Jack knows that Lauren has the finest of the or even if she's the one who released it. I, I could be wrong on that one though. I thought they knew she was out on the Gajobi Hills. So I maybe I'm not right on that, but I maybe they don't know for certain, but I thought maybe they had a good idea that she was going out that way. I think that I think that they knew she was out on the hills, but I don't think that they know that she helped release the tyrant. Mm. Gotcha. I, I'm probably wrong on that. I feel like I feel like I'm wrong on that, but but I'm I'm more confident about the finished part than I am about Whiskey Jack and Company knowing what Lauren did with Tool. Yeah, I I think it's a, a fair point. I agree with you. Okay, all right. But no yeah, worries. Okay, I'm also wondering because you remember how I, it might have been in the not the previous chapter, but the chapter before that. How Lauren uh, visits Whiskey Jack and Whiskey Jack takes her to this like, you know, room in the back of the Phoenix Inn and they have a conversation about like a plan. Yes. And then Trots after Lauren leaves was like, do you think she was fooled? I'm wondering if Lauren thinks the explosions are for the destruction of people, but 
maybe it's actually a trap for the Jag Hut Tyrant. That I did not think of, and I think that is a really good idea. Yeah, maybe, yeah. I don't think, with how powerful the Jag Hut is, I don't, maybe it's just kind of supposed to be a distraction so we can get hit from, you know, the other side or something like that, but that's a really good point. I had not thought about that. I mean, they keep calling it a diversion, you know, but like a diversion for what though? Yeah. You know? That makes that makes sense. Maybe it is a diversion for the Jaghut, you know, so that like people can actually get the fuck out of Dodge. Right. Yeah. You know? There's maybe there's probably still going to be some casualties, but I mean, what do you do? You it, do, it doesn't sound like they got a lot of good options. No. But I don't know. I get the sense that Whiskey Jack is definitely one one step ahead. I can't say without any clarifying details as to why, but it just kind of feels like he's got a little bit more of a leg up than Lorne does. Those were my only takeaways from that section. Well, are we ready to continue forward? I'm ready. As Kalam looked at Call, he said he looked like he could sleep for days. Paran was certain she, or Lorne, gave him something, even if no one saw it. Kalam says no, they were watching for that because they all expected it. Paran was dead tired, but stood and strapped his sword and said that she would turn up at the estate. Kalam says that's fine, that is where they come in. They'll take her out like Paran had, excuse me, they'll take her out like Paran wanted from the get-go. Paran says, yeah, but I'm in strung out shape. If I fight, it's going to be a short one. So just consider me the surprise. She won't expect him, and hopefully she pauses for a second. Clam needs to make that second count. Clam understands. They left Call sleeping and went downstairs. They saw Scurve the bartender, and Clam cursed and grabbed him by the shirt. Face to face, Clam says that he's tired of waiting. Get this message to the master of assassins in the city. Doesn't care how he does it, but he better do it fast. Tell the master that the biggest contract will be on the back wall of Lady Simtal's estate. Deliver the message. If he doesn't, Kalam is coming back with killing on his mind. Bran says they're just wasting their time. Kalam says they best not be and throw some money at Skurv for the trouble. Pran asks Clam if he's still following orders. He says they've been instructed to make the offer in the name of the Empress. If it's accepted and they follow through, then Lacine will have to pay even if they've been outlawed. Pran says it will be a gutted city for Dujek and the army to occupy, and the Empress will have to pay for it. She will not be pleased about that. Clam says that's not his problem. As they walked the city, the gray faces were lighting the lamps. Kalam looked at them. Pran asked what he was thinking. Kalam said something about the gray faces was bugging him. Pran said they kept the lights on like at Motel 6 and kept walking. I don't remember Lorne ever being in the room with Call. I guess that's where I'm confused. Well, wasn't he on the bed like when he was getting healed? No, because it was it was Paran, Whiskey Jack, Quick Ben, and then Mallet. And then Mallet healed Call. I don't know. I'm assuming I'm assuming it was probably like like a 
a waitress or a, you know, like something given to him to drink. I mean, they are, at, you know, above the Phoenix Inn, I, I've always imagined. <clears throat> I think, yeah, but I don't know. I guess I don't. I feel like so much has happened in these last four chapters that I just I, I might be getting details mixed up here, but I mean, you know, like I whole... could be as well. It's just as possible. Yeah, but I, I guess that's the beauty of you know only reading it once and then podcasting about it is that there's definitely going to be things that we're we're not right about, and that's okay. Yeah, definitely. I that was I guess that was my interpretation. I don't I couldn't think of. Who else they would have thought would have gave him something? Yeah, and I'm assuming to give him something to sleep, you know. So, right. What do you think uh, was bugging Kalam about the gray faces? I mean, from what I understand, they're just hooded things, you know. Like you can't see their faces, so there's already like this this inherent sense of mysteriousness with the gray faces. Even before Kalam had said anything about what was bugging him, or about the fact that like they were bugging him, I, you know, this whole book, every time they're mentioned, I'm like, what are these things? You know, so I don't know if this is just where the character in the book maybe aligns with the reader a little bit as to like pointing a finger at what potentially like there's something about gray faces. And, you know, you as the reader have kind of had this, like, weird, okay, these are great, these are gray faces. There definitely seems to be something up with them, but no one's ever talking about them. So they're just there, you know? But, I mean, it could be anything. It could be, it could be like the Tistiande in disguise. It could be, they could be like Assassin Guild people and that's how they you know kind of keep an eye on things in the city at night uh, i i mean I, sky's the limit why what are you thinking i'm kind of wondering if they're not more anth or related you know somehow to that because they seem the more seem to be kind of mysterious too and i mean i know there's been at least conversations between you know who was was Paran talking to one or Whiskey Jack? I don't remember who was talking to one. Um, but we know they speak and these, you know, these ones, they'd get hugged or whatever and they would just bow and walk away once they could get away. So I I don't know. I'm I feel like maybe we should have picked up on some hints. But obviously we haven't. Yeah, so I, I mean I, I can't I don't know. Yeah, I'm definitely I mean, I'm definitely yeah, anxious to see if that does get revealed. Like I'm now, it's in the back of my mind. You know, like it's something to keep keep an eye out for as I'm reading. But I just I get this feeling that you know whatever is about to go down, the great faces may have like a part in it, whether that is for the safety or the destruction of Jerusalem. Like maybe they're. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But it sounds like a profession, you know? I mean, sounds like something that you do. So that's kind of where I'm thinking, like, Assassin's Guild, because how else are they going to blend in without, you know, being too obvious about it? I don't, yeah, I don't know. 
It's definitely going to bug me, though. <laughs> we'll have to read and find out. Right, Rafo. Something but... we are good at doing, reading. Yes. And now, after a month, we can finally move on from this chapter. <laughs> That's true. Are you ready yeah. to move on to the next section here? Let's do it. Go for it. A black lacquered carriage uh, led by two stallions entered the throng. The carriage was surrounded by Baruch's house guards. The outside roar was muted by Baruch's sound-deadening spells. Baruch is studying Rake sitting across from him. Rake has said nothing since the return, minutes before departing for the fete. Baruch's head throbbed due to the warring of sorceries to the east. Baruch knew its source, the Barrow Dweller. Anamander Rake, his Tisiande, contested Andor, sorry, Anomander's, Anomander Rake and his Tisiande contested every step of the way, but still Reyes approached. Rake sat at ease in the carriage, his mask sitting beside him. Baruch studies the mask, but the only regard he sees from the mask is suspicion. A secret within the mask that bespoke the man wearing it. The secret eluded Baruch. I found this section, as short as it was, really interesting. Because while these dragons are fighting Rayest, which I would imagine are probably Moonspawn's maybe biggest biggest enemy, uh most powerful type of brute so to speak and he's just casually like i just imagine him you know he's got his leg crossed over his other leg and he's just bouncing it up and down like staring out the window just all nonchalant like cool calm collected like not a care in the world and baruch on the other hand is just kind of like sitting there i imagined with like his arms crossed and he's just staring Staring and studying Rake with, like, you know, suspicion. So, yeah. So, I guess did, I, did, did, I, did I hear you right? Did you, the dragons are the biggest enemy of Moonspawn? Not enemies, but, like, ally, Like, biggest, biggest, like, beast they have. Oh, you okay, know. okay. Because I was like, oh, I, I kind of thought that the dragons came from Moonspawn. Was like, did I completely yeah. miss something here? No, no, I probably said that wrong. Okay, I will. But, like, well, we've we've got two pretty wildly different opinions. Then in that case, <laughs> we're reading the same book, Derek. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, okay. Um, I was like. I was like way overthinking things. I'm like, oh fuck, I've been so wrong. No, I probably said enemies, but no, I meant I'm an ally. It's like gotcha. you know, the you know the biggest baddies that Moonspawn has to offer, besides like Rake. Right, right, and you know maybe some. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know. I mean, I would assume Rake conquered the dragons, so I would think that they're like second in command as far as like powerfulness goes, but. You know, I don't know where Sea Rat ends up in that that chain. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, I, I don't know either. But yeah. Did you have any thoughts on this whole like secret and like why staring at Rake's mask uh 
has anything to do with Baruch being eluded by some secret? I guess I don't know what the secret is. Because, well, I mean, since we've read the chapter, we know what the mask looks like. Not at this point, but um, no. I I guess it, this, I'm not sure what secret he's looking for. Hmm. I mean, I guess kind of going back to just the contrast and body language in this section, um, you know, Baruch to me seems paranoid in a way. Like, I can like I can kind of understand where he's coming from, but he doesn't trust Rake at all, and it kind of shows, especially in the scene, just like watching him suspiciously. Um, and I I just wondered if Rake is observing Baruch and just kind of like playing it off like he doesn't. Yeah, but you know he's just thinking like Rake is thinking to himself like what an asshole like why the fuck is he staring at me so, but. I know I, I re- reread that a few times and I just, I could not come up with anything anyways. Hmm. Maybe we'll have to come back um, to that conversation when, now that you've brought up the whole mask thing, when we are revealed what mask he is wearing. Sure. Cool. I mean... I feel- I feel like you're thinking something that I'm just blatantly missing. So I'm looking forward to that then. <laughs> um, yeah, we can move on then. If you have no more thoughts on this particular section. Well, clearly I had very few thoughts. <laughs> but I'm the blonde it's one in fine. the group here. Just went over my head. Uh, so. <laughs> How do you keep a blonde at home? I don't know. Build a circular driveway. Oh, ouch. Yeah, that was bad. All right, well, I'll start the next section here. Turban Orr adjusted his mask before he ascended the steps to the estate's main doors. He heard another carriage pull up, and behind him, Lady Simtal spoke. She wished he would have let one of her servants know that he was arriving. She offers to escort him inside. He wants to wait a moment. He recognizes the carriage as Baruch's, but that isn't Baruch getting out. Simtal asks who it is, and he replies that it's Baruch's guest. Well, no shit. She wants to know who he is. uh, What the fuck was I typing here? She wants to know if he's seen this person before. Turban Orr replies, how could he know, with a mask. She tells him to quit screwing around. How many seven-feet-tall men with a giant-ass sword strapped to their back does he know? And is his hair a part of the mask or not? Brooke emerged from behind the stranger, and Orr did not answer Lady Simtel's question. He noted that Brooke's mask was quite plain, while the stranger's was that of a dragon. Simtal asked if they were going to sit there all night. Oh, and where's your wife? Or replied that she was sick. How about they introduce themselves to Baruch and his guest? And has he complimented her costume? She replies that he has not, and Turban Orr says that a Black Panther looks good on her. She's aware that she looks hot as fuck in her costume, and says hello to Baruch and asks the stranger if they had met. Brooke introduces Lord Anamander Rake, a visitor to Darujistan, and waits to see if they recognize the name. 
He was slightly relieved that they did not appear to know who he was. Turban Orr asks if he holds title to any lands since he is a lord. Rake says that yes, he holds title, but it is honorary bestowed to him by his people. Simtal says they need to get going into the party. It has already started. So Turban Orr is wearing a so we got hawk the mask, mask reveal. Yep. For some reason I was thinking it was a little further on, but Yeah, me too. <laughs> I kind of but, forgot. No, it, it's fine. Um, but yeah, there's three masks or four masks. I think Baruch is just wearing like a plain, a plain mask that just like covers the eyes. You yeah. know? And then or Turban Orr is wearing a hawk mask. Lady Simtel is wearing a Black Panther mask. And then Rake is wearing a dragon mask. Which seems to fit for him. So I'm curious then, based on the previous section and the whole secret thing, like what sparks Baruch's suspicion is looking at the mask. Does Baruch know that essentially the Tisiande are holding captive the dragon Warren? Like, is that maybe the secret? Like, does Baruch not know that? Yeah, I, I feel like it has something to do with dragons. You know, like, or if the dragons, or if he doesn't know that the dragons are the one fighting the Jaghut tyrant, you know, I think you're probably on something about it being regarding the dragons. Yeah, I, I don't know that I still picked up much on this. Might have to draw me some pictures and spell it out a little more for me. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I yeah I, I I guess I don't really have much more to offer outside of I feel like the secret has something to do with you know his him him being able to because you know in the previous section Baruch in his you know kind of thought monologue is talking about how Reist is being contested by Rake and Tistiande. It specifically said Tistiande and not dragons. So I'm wondering if Baruch thinks that Rake has sent like Tistiande mages and sorcerers to fight Rayist and not dragons. So, but that just seems to be the more, that just seems to be the, the, the logical way that my mind is working. Like dragons fighting Rayist, Baruch looks at dragon mask, feels suspicion, something about a secret eludes him like you know like to the reader that may be uh, you know a logical connection as to what you know rake is hiding from baruch but i mean really the sky could be the limit because it sounds like rake is like two thousand years old or twenty thousand years old excuse me he's pretty fucking old but you know and I feel like, and I was really looking forward to this, and I know we might have talked about it as the Fete was coming up, and I think it was in the last episode where we were talking about, like, I was I was hoping that, like, the characters' masks would be revealed as to what they wore, and I definitely think there is some intention there with the masks and the characters, like, 
personality or their story arc. Um, you know, Turban or he's wearing a hawk mask, right? Like hawks are really good hunters. They are um, very stealthy from what I understand. He seems to be like that in the council. You know, he's kind of manipulative and uh, vindictive to to get what he wants. So I am making a relation there. You know, Black Panthers, as far as um, Lady Simtel goes, you know, they're kind of seen as a very exotic beast, um, very beautiful in nature, uh, sexy, etc. You, you see where I'm going with this? Yes. And Baruch's mask is just boring. So, like, I think that Baruch is just trying to play the game of being like avoiding attention he doesn't want attention on himself he doesn't want people thinking he has rule over jerujistan when he actually does my two cents on the masks so far i think that's definitely some good insight i get excited about masks i don't know why they're just so fucking cool (laughs) but yeah, I don't know. I guess outside of that, I don't really have much more. Um, oh, actually, we do know where Turban Orr's wife is. Then remind me, please. So it was like super early in, well, maybe not super early in the book, but do you remember a specific chapter where Marilio is having wine with a, a, a lady and he ends up getting invited to the fete? By this young or by this lady, I'm pretty sure it was Turban Orr's wife who he was supposed to go with. I don't know if I remember that. Yeah, it was either it was either Councilman Lim's wife or it was Turban Orr's wife. But I'm pretty sure that it was Turban Orr's wife. That that was how Marilio got like tickets to the fete. Oh, yeah, it's ringing a bell a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I think it was like the first or second chapter in the Jerugistan sub book. So yeah, I thought like that was, was kind of cool. Ago. Yeah. That was kind of cool. It was like a little nod, a little nod to that. So I think uh, we're probably ready for you to take your next section. Sweet. Uh, Marilio and Ralic stood near an open doorway leading out to the patio garden. Ralic was wearing a mask of the Catlin Tiger. Marilio was wearing a peacock mask. With Ralic leaning against the wall to bear his weight, Marilio knew it wasn't just a lazy slouch. Marilio wondered if matters would fall to him. Suddenly, Ralic stiffened, eyes focused on the entrance in front of them, Marilio craned his neck to see over the crowd, finally seeing the man in the hawk mask. Marilio tells Relic that he's located Orr, but he didn't know who Orr was with. Relic growls the name Simtel, Simtel, and notice, notices what could potentially be Baruch and some really tall dude. Marilio tells Relic that if Baruch sees them, it wouldn't take him much long. It wouldn't take him long to figure things out and intercede. 
Bralik says that it doesn't matter because he won't stop them. Marilio almost drops the glass as he curses. Bralik curses and is heard saying, he's heading straight for him. Man, all I can think about is Ralik is fucking pissed. <laughs> like he sees Or and Simitol and is just furious, which I think is funny that he's wearing a tiger mask. He's ready to pounce. Right. Right. And also he's an assassin. Tigers are like great at stalking people in high grass and shit. Or stalking prey, not people. But I guess people are prey to tigers. Yeah, I can't think of uh, many things that eat tigers, so. Nope, nope. Did you make the connection between Marilio and the peacock? Probably not, no. Okay. So, a peacock, um, they, you know, they're feathers, right? Like, it's kind of their, their way of attracting a mate. Well, Marilio is kind of like the... A gigolo is probably the worst word, but that's kind of what he is. He he has he has sex for influence, so he is an attractive man who a lot of women respond to physically. So Peacock was kind of a perfect fit for that, in my opinion. Dude, you're so good at drawing these connections. Sorry, it's just what I do. Like I loved, I love this chapter. What and are you I sorry love for? masquerade parties. What's that? So what are you sorry for? Oh, I don't know. I, just, I think too much sometimes. <laughs> no, dude, definitely don't be sorry. Because I never would have picked that up. Not at all. Hmm. Well, I'm glad that I could uh, enlighten you, I guess. Yeah. No, it, it is cool. Because it's like, huh. It makes sense. But I wouldn't have got that. But... Who did were you confused when Ralic is like he's heading straight for him when you read that section? Were you like, who the fuck are they talking about? I don't know if I really thought about that either. Cause like it just it felt really out of place. You know, like they're both standing next to this patio wall, you know, leading out to the patio garden. Which I think is funny. Like this isn't the first time that the garden has come up so far because that's where whiskey Jack and company have been stationed. Like that's where they're stationed. That's where Lauren planted the thinnest. Marillion and Ralic are just standing outside the doorway that leads to the patio garden. Like it seems to be some type of like a central theme so far. I could very well be wrong, but just, it was something that I noticed as I was reading this chapter. Again, something that I did not notice. I'm glad that we can kind of balance each other, balance each other out. I feel like we're both pretty good at noticing things that the other didn't. Yeah. I think we, we Which definitely, is nice. yeah, it, it, we, we have different thought processes for sure. And not, I'm not saying that that's wrong from one another, but clearly we no. both come to things in a different way. Well, it adds more volume to the, the the book, right? I mean, I think it was, it, you know, it's definitely a, a perk that I didn't anticipate going into doing a podcast about a book. But it, it's, it definitely adds more layers to what it is that you've read, you know? And I think, I think at the end of the day, it, it really makes it stand out to me 
like I remember a lot of things from this book simply because like I read it multiple times and then I summarize it and then I talk about it with you. And then we bounce these different things that like we caught or didn't catch or, you know, so just like, I think it adds like, honestly, this should be a way you read a book as shitty as that is because it takes fucking forever. But like you really get a good sense of what's going on. Yeah. And with something as complicated as the Malazan series, from what I understand, this would be, you know, one way to go about like really honing in things and not like we're catching everything i'm sure there's tons of shit we missed or we're wrong about so i think we do a pretty good job i would agree but yeah I'm, well, anything uh, else you would like to add here not at all proceed if you'd like all right lady simtal and turban or excuse themselves from baruch and rake simtal fielded questions from the growing crowd about animander a figure approached baruch the reader knows this to be corrupt from the description. Rake says that he seems eager. Baruch laughs and said he worked for him and vice versa. This is the eel, the master spy of Darujistan. Rake says you've got to be kidding. Baruch says that he is dead serious. Krupp introduces himself and says it's such a pleasant surprise to find him at the party. Oh, and your friend has magnificent hair. Baruch simply says that this is Lord Anamander Rake. Krupp says, of course, and that he envies those who are so tall and can look down on others. I really like this line. Anamander Rake says that it is easy to fool yourself into thinking that those who are beneath as small and insignificant, a risk of oversight. Krupp says he thinks this pun was intended, but thinks that flying on a dragon would be wondrous. Baruch reminds him that it's only a mask. Krupp says that is one of the great ironies of life. To learn to distrust the obvious and instead surrender to suspicion. Is Krupp deceived? Does a bear shit in the woods or an eel swim? Time for Krupp to check the kitchens and he takes his leave. Rake says he is indeed an eel and a lesson to all. Baruch agrees and says he needs a drink and that he'll get one for rake also i thought it was kind of an interesting interaction between krupp and rake i'm pretty sure krupp had a very good idea of who this was and he's just still being the eel you know he's still pretending to play dumb but he's he definitely knows what's up well and i think that rake Rake kind of knows and sees through that facade a little bit based on some of the ways that he responds. Yeah, he seems almost annoyed. I, I kind of felt like. And, you know, he seems to be a bit skeptical about this very rotund man being the eel. <laughs> or, yeah, you're like, how is this guy doing anything besides hitting the snack bar? <laughs> right. Right, right. Um, yeah, it was an interesting interaction. But, you know, going back to the previous section, when I read this next one, I'm like, ah, yep, it's totally corrupt that is approaching. So, yeah. And, again, Ralic and Marilio didn't want him there. There he is. 
Oh, you knew he would be there. Right. Well, Marilio was under some type of spell, so I don't think that he was able to inform Ralic because he totally just forgot about it. That's true. Interesting section. Yeah, like... I don't really have yeah. much more to it, though. I just... I guess the only thing I would add is just I, I like that, you know, for how big Rake is, if he's not going to discount somebody because of their size. You know, sure, he was surprised that this, you know, this fat little guy is the master spy, <laughs> but, you know, looks looks can be deceiving, so not to, you know, don't be overconfident. He, de- he doesn't seem to be overconfident, I guess. Yeah. I think it, I think it just, you know, goes along the whole, you know, beauties in the eye of the beholder type thing and i think it was just very whimsical of of rake to not undermine you know someone's size because again he's been around the block only for you know two you know twenty thousand years so he's definitely learned some shit and has probably learned to be like humble and wise and I don't know. I, I like Rake. I like him as a character. Yeah, I do too. He is probably one of my more favorite ones. I would agree. I would totally agree. Well, I did not have any further insight here, so if you would like to push us along here. Yeah, we totally can. Turban Orr had his back towards the wall as he surveyed the crowded room. He was finding it hard to relax, as the previous week had been rough. He still awaited confirmation from the Assassin's Guild on the contract that was out on call. It wasn't like them to take so long. His hunt for the spy in his organization had come to a dead end. Over and over again, especially since Councilman Lim's death, he found his moves in the council blocked by countermoves. The proclamation of neutrality was dead in the water and he knew it, but not without action on his part. Currently, he had his most trusted and capable messenger likely traveling through the Gadrovi Hills to make their way to Pale. Turban Orr knew the Malazans were coming, and it was time to secure his own position when the Empire took over. His eyes fell to a guard stationed to the side of the staircase, not his face, but the way he stood. He was dressed like a, ma- like a Majesty Hall guard. At this moment, the guard adjusts his helmet strap, and Orr goes apeshit with rage as he recognizes this guard as the one who is stationed outside the despot Barbican. Finally, the spy had been found. He wanted his revenge to be swift. He straightened and put his hand on his pommel and began to move. He collided with his shoulder and staggered back. As Turban Orr attempted to go around, the man intercepted him and cut him off. Turban Orr curses as wine is poured down his chest. Turban Orr calls this man an idiot and furiously tells him to get out of the way. The man continues to egg on Turban Orr with an insult and a refusal to move out of Orr's way, or demands this man give him his name. After refusing to cough up his name, Orr turns to address the crowd and tells them that there will be some unscheduled entertainment this evening. The crowd goes silent, and someone within the crowd yells, Duel! Orr points at Ralik Nam and tells the crowd that Relic had the balls to wear the mask of Trake and to take a good look at this man 
as he will be dead. Ralik tells him to shut the fuck up already, or removes his mask and has a tight grin on his face. Ralik Nam removes his mask and tosses it to the floor. Or says to Nam, unmasked and still a stranger. Or then continues to tell Ralik to find himself a second. Suddenly, a thought struck him, and he turned to the crowd. He found the man with the wolf mask. His choosing of a second would have political benefits. Or announces that Estrasian Diarl, the man in the wolf mask, to be his second. Estrasian was startled, but moving past his wife and daughter, tells the crowd that he accepts. Pleased with this, he turns to face Ralik and asks him who his second will be. Some shit about to go down. For sure. Yeah, a lot of shit about to go down. I mean, I know that we don't really get a lot about Turban Orr. Um, po- like, we get most of what his character is politically and as a councilman. But he gets pissed really quick. You know, and to the point where, like, okay, now it's time to die because you won't get the fuck out of my way. You know, it throws a, a fit pretty quick. Right, right. And I, I know that at first I was kind of confused as like how he figured out essentially Circle Breaker, but it's clear that there must be that guards don't. Certain guards are stationed where they're stationed, and that's only where they're stationed. You know what I mean? So, like, I'm assuming, like, soldiers at Despot Barbicans, the guards, don't ever guard Majesty Hall. And that's how he figured out who Circle Breaker is, or, the like, the spy in his organization, so to speak. Because, like, it just felt too convenient at first. But then I'm like, when I really thought about it, I'm like, ah, that makes more sense. I think you summed that up pretty well. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I you know, definitely more kind of uh, confrontational section. Um, as confrontational it is, you know, it's pretty it's pretty cut and dry to me, as far as like what's going on. I don't think that there's really much to be deduced here. I think it's interesting that Turban Orr is is choosing Estrasion Diarl to be his second. Um, but I mean, it kind of explains that because there's political benefits to it. Yeah, I'm not exactly mostly, sure what those are, but I got the sense of that I mean, the, those two don't like each other at all. So it it's going to make people wonder, you know, if they made up, you know, or you know, seeing these two people that hate each other. I, I right, wouldn't say like, working together, I guess, but like on his side. And what exactly does a second mean in a duel? I get the sense like I don't know if maybe if they felt it was like unfair, you know, then you have the second step in, you know, after the the first gets killed, you know, but it was like illegitimate or something to you ha- you have the second to like avenge, you know, the the original dueler. Yeah, maybe I don't know. I guess if there's a Anybody listening who knows the answer to that question, please feel free to reach out and let us know. But yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, that makes sense, but based on the way that the events of the chapter go, I'm not quite sure. 
you know? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, and we can talk about it there when we, when we get to that point, but I, I guess it kind of makes sense to me um, based on who we picked, what happens and, and what's said. Um, the only other thing I had, I guess that I would bring up was uh, Ralic and his mask. You know, and you're talking about the, I guess, symbolism between the mask and their wearer. And I had to look up who or what Trake was. I, I don't remember that being mentioned before. Um, but I don't know if, if you knew who Trake was. Um, he is, he's the, he's like a god that is a tiger, I think. Or, you know, maybe has um, like kind of like a, a hybrid between a, a tiger and a human, if I recall correctly. I feel Trake. like he extra- explains it in one of the previous sections. I, I did not remember it, but in the glossary, it says that Trake is the tiger of summer and battle. So, gotcha. you know, Rake is kind of setting all this off for the battle. So it, it seems to fit again, you know, he's... He's he's kind of looking for the fight here, though, right? He's he's not being sneaky about it, though. He's just coming right out for it, coming to right. fuck he's, up his day. Yeah, he's the aggressor here. Totally, I like that. Yeah, I definitely. I did not remember hearing Trake before. No, you're 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 absolutely right. This is the first time Trake is being mentioned. Oh, it was okay. Yeah. Well, anything else you want to add there? Um, no, I do not have anything else to add. All right. Keep plugging away. Lady Simtal says she, sorry. Sorry. I thought, I thought for a second that, uh, it was my turn to read, but I'm wrong. No. (laughs) Uh, Lady Simtal says she does not have much time. She is the hostess after all. And the man in front of her finished her sentence for her. Your duty to satisfy your guests. He adds that he's sure she can do it well. She says, you've got half an hour. He says that will be plenty of time and that each minute will be better than the last. She tells him that he'll have to tell Widow Lim that he's found a better lay. Suddenly, she asks if he can hear that. Hear what? It's silent downstairs. The man says they probably went to the garden and that time's ticking away. He pulls her close and she gasps as she finds out Murillo is packing some heat. She says, what are they doing still in clothes? He says, that's a good question. And they both tumble to the bed. Okay, so I was wrong. It's Councilman Lim's widow that he took. What's that? I was wrong. It's Councilman Lim's widow that he took or that he met with earlier in the book oh for the, the tickets yeah or the invites or whatever right yeah i like how you wrote tumbled on the bed like <laughs> like they're they're wrestling with each other well i mean i guess they kind of are but um you know yeah yeah this is a uh, pretty straightforward here though i mean it's just uh, a little bit of romping and rolling around yeah they're gonna do the horizontal mambo right yeah yep so and they got half an hour 
Yep, they got a half hour to do it. I don't know. Every minute is better than the, the last. That's a tall order. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. But he's probably just trying to, you know, he's just talking it up. Well, and I mean, from, you know, I'm gathering that this is, you know, this is all part of Bralick and Murillo's plan is he, as the peacock, right, is to keep her occupied. So, That's a good point. Yeah. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Very straightforward. Not really too much to deduce there. Nope, just uh, kind of the smut of the book, I guess. <laughs> right, yeah. Smut indeed. But, well, yeah. Should we I mean, keep going cool, on? We're, we're, building, we're building on to uh, the, some payoff here. Let's do it. In the silence that followed Turban Orr's question, Baruch found himself wanting to go forward. Ralik was a friend, a closer one than that of Marilia or Krupp. And despite Ralik's profession had integrity. Baruch knew that Ralik was there to fight a dreadful wrong, and with Or Simtel's and with Or Simitel's last link to power. With Or dead, Simitel would fall. Call's return to the council is something that himself and his Torah Cabal greatly desired, and Turban Or's death would be a relief. More was riding on this duel than Ralik could imagine. Taking a deep breath, he starts to walk forward when suddenly a huge hand rests on his shoulder. Before Baruch could do anything, Anamanda Rake stepped forward and addressed the crowd. Offering to be Ralik's second, Ralik simply nods, or is astonished, or in astonishment asks if the two strangers know each other. Rake puts Or to shame by telling everyone that Or that Rake wishes to forego a council debate on Ralik's second. And by offering to be his second, will end Orr's endless talking. Turban Orr led the way to the terrace. Before Baruch turned, he felt a familiar contact of energies. He turned to find or to face a hideous mask. It was Mammoth. Baruch questioned where he had gotten it. Mammoth is wearing a mask to that of a Jag Hut features. Baruch asks Mammoth if he's found his nephew. Mammoth replies that he hasn't and that he's become quite concerned. Baruch responds by saying that he hopes that Opun's luck holds for the boy. Mamet simply agrees. I will say I did not see that coming for Rake to volunteer as Relic's second. I would def- I would agree. I did not see that coming when I read the- this chapter either. But it yeah. seems like it fits his character, right? Because he's just like, I'm old as fuck. I'm tired of all your talking. Like, let's just do this. Right, exactly. And kind of puts Orr to shame. So it was nice to to kind of see him shut Orr up a bit. Right. Like, I don't want to keep, like, I don't want to hear you keep talking. So, like, let's just get this fucking show on the road. <laughs> yeah. Right. You don't even know this guy. He's like, I don't care. We're Let's just get this done. <laughs> right, exactly. And, I mean, honestly... Who's going to take Rake as a second? Like, I mean, who who else would you want as a second? Yeah, like the, ev- the biggest guy there. Like, if I was a Strasian, I'd be like, uh, yeah, I'm not going to fuck with this guy. Like, <laughs> no thanks. Right, yeah. I'm definitely picking Rake first. Like, Yeah. So, but yeah, another, another, you know, straightforward section. You know, it's just, it's building... 
building for what is you know eventually going to come right like yeah. we know at this point a duel is about to commence so i think that the section was just kind of moving that forward just kind of setting the stage yeah exactly setting the stage so i don't know if i have anything else to add to that i mean i think this is probably the one mask that i don't i don't really understand why mammoth would wear a jag hut mask i can't really find any type of connection there um i guess the only thing that comes to mind was like he went through his warren or whatever and like was kind of stuck for a while right that was mammoth right yep but like very few people know that so yeah i don't know so you're thinking that like most people wouldn't know how to recognize the jag hut features i guess i don't know about that that's just the only link i could think was that he went you know he, he went to go check out the the barrel or whatever and kind of got held up for however long it was so do you think that like <laughs> while he's laying there stuck he's just studying raised like yeah that's gonna be a good mask to wear for this that day <laughs> <laughs> could be okay we'll leave it at that yeah, like that's, that. All we, that's all we got to go off of right now so yeah <laughs> we'll chalk that one up to the w column <laughs> right exactly all right, should we uh, take another step towards this duel? Let's do it. All right. A crowd was forming in the terrace. Whiskey Jack eyes grew wide at all the people. Fiddler said there was to be a duel. A councilman named Orr and some other guy nobody knows. He's with the guy in the dragon mask. Whiskey Jack looked at the huge man in the dragon mask. Hood's balls. Uh, I mean, about that's the best curse in the book. Do you recognize him? He's from Moonspawn. That's the mage Teshran fought. He's Tisty Andy. Fiddler says they're fucked. He's found them. Whiskey Jack tells him to can it and tells him to line up everybody as they were instructed. Fiddler rounded up the crew. Quick Ben says Fiddler explained it to him. He may not be much use. The Barrow Dweller was using some nasty magic and his head is ready to explode. He said to look around. You can tell who's a mage by the look on their face. If they all access their warns, they'd be okay. Whiskey Jack asks why they don't. Quick Ben says, if they did, the Jag Hat would lock on like a beacon and pick everyone off, even from a distance. Whiskey Jack tells him to check with Hedge and Fiddler. They needed to have something handy if things went to shit. The estate would need to burn long and hot. They'd need the diversion to set off the mines in the intersections. Whiskey Jack jerked in surprise as a man stepped past him from the woods and walked into the crowd. Whiskey Jack simply stared as he didn't understand how he got back there. He thought they had the woods sealed off. I really liked this section. It's like if they were to access their warrens, they would essentially have like magical Tylenol, right? To cure this monstrous headaches that they're getting from all of the sorceries happening out east but it also adds just this like element of terror even like even for the weak ones 
they could get picked off from this distance as it would just be a beacon for Rayist, you know? Like, that's some scary shit. I, it didn't make sense to me the first couple times I, well, like the first time I read him, like, I thought they're like, well, if they all access their wars, they're going to like try to fight this thing. But then, it, you know, I, I think the second time or maybe when I was rereading it as I was doing my summaries, you know, it, it made sense. Like, oh, yeah, like you said, that would, they could cure themselves of the headache. But for whatever reason, that first time through, it just, it, I just didn't get it. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm in the same boat. It wasn't until I think my last re- reread through it that I I really understood what it was that accessing their warren would do for them in that situation. And it just kind of sucks that they, you know, I mean, yeah, I guess I don't know how to, to, to put it in words, but they're essentially in pain and they can't access their warrens because... You know, they know something is on the the verge. Like they know that something is not right with the sorceries in the air, so they're not risking it. But some do know what's happening, and some don't. I would imagine. But it's just funny how they all align to do the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Also, like I feel like this section is kind of a. a not really a turning point, but like imagine if Whiskey Jack wouldn't have reacted so calmly about it. Recognizing Anamander Rake as the the mage that fought Tayshren. So in their perspective, like at least from Fiddler, from what we get from the section, is that he thinks that they have been discovered they are still associated with the Malazan Empire. So how differently would the the events be if they if Whiskey Jack would have been all like, okay, well let's go fucking attack him then. You know? Yeah, it would be a bad deal, I think. Because Rake, we know, has no idea who they are. Like, they are the first to recognize him. And it just goes to show you how, I guess, Whiskey Jack's experience is speaking at this point in time. I guess, was that, I'm not sure if that was a question or a statement from you. Uh, Maybe both. I'm not too sure. (laughs) I don't know that I have an answer for you. No, I just, I I mean, I can just see it in my head, that scenario, and I don't see it going well. So... I guess all I'm trying to say is that, like, I think Whiskey Jack putting myself in his shoes again, like, I would have done the same thing. I would have just, like, okay, let's cool it. Like, everything's fine. He's currently distracted at the moment. You know, et cetera, et cetera. We'll just do what we got to do and deal with things as they come up. Right. Like, just stick to the plan. Again, uh, going back to the whole garden thing, do you see what I'm talking about? Like, this dude popping out from the garden that they're supposed to keep people away, as well as the fact that, like, the the uh, the duel has proceeded to the, the garden terrace. All the important stuff's happening in the garden. Mm-hmm. Where trees die and regrow again. But, uh, yeah, I guess I don't really have anything else for this section. I don't... You don't... I'd... 
I'm cool with moving on. Absolutely, my friend. Crocus had no idea what costume Chalice D'Arl would be wearing. Absalar had stayed back at the back garden wall, and Crocus felt guilt for that. Questioning himself as why Absalar was so nice about everything. Through the strange crowd, Crocus was able to pick out Chalice sitting next to her mother. Their, intention was on, their attention was on a man unusually tall. Crocus squeezed through some guards and then tried to locate their, the other duelist. He was able to locate Ralik Nam and then looked back at the first duelist. Nudging the guard, he asked if it was Turban Orr. The guard, or Circle Breaker, replies that it is indeed. Crocus asks the guard where Lady Simtel is. The guard seemed relieved to know that she was nowhere in sight, because otherwise she would have stopped this. Crocus blurts out that Ralik will win. The guard asks Crocus if he personally knows the man. As Crocus was about to give a response, he felt a tap on his shoulder. He turns to see a short, fat man wearing a cherub mask. Crocus is like, Crocus is like, is that you, Krupp? Krupp tells Crocus that he is correct, and then hands the guard a scroll and tells the guard that it's from a secret admirer. Crocus grins at this. Circle Breaker is thankful for the duel, as he had felt Turban Orr's eyes on him at several points. He prayed that Ralik would kill Orr. Circle Breaker then opens the letter and begins to read. So I actually want to read the letter here. The time has come for Circle Breaker to retire from active duty. The circle is mended, loyal friend. Though you have ever seen, you have never seen the eel, you have been his most trusted hand, and you have earned your rest. Think not that the eel simply discards you now. Such is not the eel's way. The sigil at the bottom of this parchment will provide you passage to the city of Davron, where loyal servants of the eel have prepared your arrival by purchasing an estate and a legitimate title on your behalf. You enter a different world soon with its own games. Trust your new servants, friend, in this and all other concerns. Proceed this very night to the Davron Trader's Pier in Lake Front. You seek the river longboat named Enscalader. Show the sigil to any crewmen aboard. All are servants of the eel. The time has come, Circle Breaker. The circle is mended. Fare you well. This is a nice letter. Yeah, it is a really nice letter. And it uh I know that there was a few episodes ago where we were talking about, you know, Krupp's or the Eels influence outside of the city. And I guess it's nice to know that you know, nice and kind of weird and strange that he has so many connections in other places. I've got a feeling that, you know, the eel is not something that is gonna go away after this book mm, yeah i don't think so so but yeah um i still want to know who circle breaker is though like that's still driving me absolutely fucking bonkers yeah i, I don't know who he is but i know we'll, we'll talk about that at the end a little bit too also the cherub mask mr krupp um i had to think about the 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 masks and all of them make sense for their characters um except for krupp but looking up some info on cherubs it appears that in a biblical sense they were 
to attend. They were like attendants of God, which Krupp's talent does a similar. So essentially the way that I'm interpreting Krupp's talent is essentially like the God's way of, of giving information to Krupp kind of like an attendant would um, like they're given directions and then they go do those things, you know? So that's kind of where, like at first I was like cherub mask, like that doesn't make any damn sense. But then when I looked it up like that kind of ties things together, I, again, I could be wrong on that one, but that's at least what I'm going with for now. I mean, I didn't even know what a cherub was, so I was just like kind of, I don't know what kind of mask he's got on, but whatever. They're like they're like uh, little baby angels. Yeah, I know that now, <laughs> but oh, at the time okay. I didn't. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, it's a little messed up that Circle Breaker. Like, how fucked would you be if like you're noticing this guy that you've been spying on? And he suddenly notices you and, you know, you're not picking up some good vibes from him. Like, how scared shitless would you be? Because you can't you can't just abandon your post because then, like, you're for sure discovered, you know? So, like, you just kind of got to wait and see what happens. So he's just essentially praying that Rallet kills Orr. Yeah, I'm sure he was nervous. I would be shitting my pants. I mean, hey, maybe he did. We don't know. <laughs> I mean, he has a circle breaker. Broke his butthole circle? I, I don't know what you're going for here. Yeah, I am. Mean, <laughs> breaker of shit, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Breaking right. a shit. <laughs> well, anything else you want to throw I like one here? breaks a sweat. Breaking a shit, yeah. All right. All right. I got nothing. I'll I'm take sorry. It. I'll take it. I got nothing. I failed. I failed. No. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, those are the only really things that I had. Um, All right. Well, we will get uh, we will get it on here. Celebrity Let's get it on. Baruch had had enough of these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane. He said he would officiate the duel. Judgment of the winner would be his, and he would accept all responsibilities. Do both parties agree? Both accept. Thunder crashed nearby. Turbinor, being a smartass, says, Before it rains, his friends laughed at his joke. He said maybe it would be more entertaining to draw things out a bit, but they must consider their host. Their host? Where was Lady Simtal? It makes no matter. This will be finished quick. Or took out his sword and assumed his position. While Ralic just stood there, ten feet away, or asked where his weapon was, Ralic only said he was ready. Baruch placed himself between them and looked sick. He asked if either of the seconds had anything to stay, anything to say. Estrasian to Arl said he didn't give a fuck if Or died or lived. If he died, there would be no vengeance coming from his side. Relic simply bowed, while Orr thought to himself that Daarl would pay for that remark. Baruch noted the comments and raised a handkerchief and dropped it to start the duel. Orr immediately leapt towards Relic. Relic deflected Orr's blade and then drove one of his own knives into Orr's neck, the other into his chest. 
He was dead before he hit the ground. Over in an instant. Ralik whispered only loud enough that Baruch and Ray could hear and said, A thousand other deaths would not have satisfied me, but I'll settle for this one. Baruch looks at Ralik and says, Given the style, it looked like they witnessed an assassination, but not even the guild would commit public murder, so he will keep the suspicions to himself. Have a good night. Rake only says it was not a fair fight. Baruch told Ralik it was over and to go home. Suddenly, a woman approached Baruch and introduced herself as the witch Derudan. Rake asks for forgiveness on the mask, but it's best it stays on. She pays no mind and says that she and her friends feel uneasy with the approaching storm, even though Baruch says it will be fine. Rake says that if it's necessary, he will take care of that himself, but he feels that the night's greatest threat is not outside the walls, but it is only a hunch. Baruch asks for more information on the subject, and Rake says it would be unwise, as it is still too sensitive a subject. However, he will remain for the time being. Derudin says the Cabal is not used to feeling so helpless, but she trusts the Lord for now, but she must talk with Baruch. Damn. I, you know, I was really expecting uh, a little bit of a longer duel, but I guess it just, it really goes to show you, you know, how good Ralic is. And, you know, I know Turban Ore is like a good fencer. And at one point in the story, Marilio was questioning if he would be able to best or so yeah i just i gotta hand it to relic you know he killed the dick yeah yeah he he sure handled turban or like it was not a big deal at all you know i don't know if some of that was just or being overconfident i think some of it probably was you know he, he probably thought like oh i'm gonna f- just fucking murder this kid right now <laughs> yeah you know he got his ass handed to him just flat out he's just fucking dead in the water i just literally i don't know literally. yeah right it, i don't know it makes me feel a little bit sad for for relic because it's not it's not what he wanted but it'll do you know what i mean like as far as call calling his journey back to his former his former title is concerned. Yeah. But I think he's still, you know, I don't know if he feels good about killing him, but he's maybe there's some relief there, I guess. Yeah. Maybe just a small amount that like not necessarily who he got to kill because you know, Turban Ore is not directly responsible for you know the dethroning of call that's lady simitel in order to get to her kind of you know you gotta go through him type of a thing so right yeah it was i was kind of surprised how how quick the fight was over yeah yeah i mean i think i think uh from beginning of the fight to the end was like a paragraph and a half yeah it wasn't much no no, it wasn't. But um, what did what did you think of this uh, Derudin, this Derudin witch? Like I thought, <laughs> I thought that she was interesting. 
I'd like well, to get to know more. I'm sure we'll see something at some point, but you know, she's with the cabal. Um, you know, she's obviously worried about what's coming. So I, I don't know. I guess the jury's kind of out yet. I don't, I don't know where she kind of, where her loyalties lay, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. We've only had a few sentences from her. So I, I don't know. I, I don't really know yet. What about you? I'm in the same boat. I'm not really too sure what really to make of her. I just I thought it was uh, I thought it was an interesting way to introduce somebody. You know, like we just got done reading, you know, this duel, and it, you know, that tension as far as like that story goes. You know, there's there's it keep it it was kept moving forward in the way that is beneficial to Ralic and Marilio and, and, you know, even uh, Baruch in some sense. And then to introduce this, this, this witch that, uh, you know, is willing to trust Lord Anamander Rake for the meantime, but then kind of like takes Baruch aside to talk to him. Yeah, I, I don't know where that's going. Yeah. It, I don't know how much we'll get in this book, but I'm sure we'll get something. You know, at, at some point we'll see more. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, I guess, did you have any other thoughts on this section? I'm. Those are all I can think of. Yeah, I think, uh, I think we're good to keep going here. Cool. I think this one was my shortest section here, so... Uh, Krupp intercepts a servant and takes a few savory sweets. The crowd outside appears to be like lost children as they wonder where Lady Simitel is. Better yet, the crowd begins to wonder who she's with. Krupp smiles underneath his cherub mask and looks up at the balcony window to see a feminine silhouette behind the sheer curtains. He whispers to himself, Marilio should prepare for a storm. The only part of the section is, is I'm not really sure what storm. I feel like storm is not the same storm that is conjuring in the east. So, but I, I don't have any, I can't speculate as to what specifically, what else that could be. Yeah, unless it's just, I mean, he must, must know what kind of is going on. So unless it's just going to be like a storm of emotions. But it is right. it's kind of one of those things. It could be either or, you know, just kind of the play on words this is going to be the obvious, like you said, the storm from the east. Or is, I, I think you're right. I think there's a deeper meaning to it. Yeah. I mean, outside of that, I didn't, you know, this is maybe a good segue, but I feel like it is just setting up for the next section um, with Crump looking up at the balcony and seeing a feminine silhouette behind the sheer curtains, which I'm only, uh, I'm taking as Lady Simitel. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's the only person it could be. I'm pretty confident in saying that. I guess with that, should we read on? Um, sure. I just, you know, is, is Krupp never not eating something? Like, come on, dude. I mean, he can't even get in his, his shirt buttoned, but I mean, at least it's clean. Like, I guess, like... That's the bare minimum we can do. We can eat, but he's not a messy eater. Right. Right. 
Yeah, no, it, that kind of seems to be his shtick. Is that you know he's always got food in his mouth, or he's around food, or when he's not, he's hungry. He's thinking about food. He's like right, Garfield. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I'm just gonna imagine or, or like Crop uh, uh, is an orange cat with black stripes on his back. <laughs> Come on, John. Give me my lasagna. Come on, John. Where's my lasagna? All right. Well, I will continue on here. Is it Monday? I hate Mondays. All right. Lady Simtal looked out the window. She said he was right. They did go to the terrace, which was odd since the storm was approaching. Should she get dressed? She asked about him. Is his companion wondering where he is? Aurelio says he doubts it. Simtal asks... Who it was he even came with. He says, oh, just a friend. You probably wouldn't even recognize the name. At that moment, the door crashes open. Simtal yells at the intruder to leave at once. Before she can finish the sentence, the intruder says, both guards patrolling have departed. Departed? What do you mean? Relic says, their loyalty have been bought. That's a lesson that shouldn't be lost on her. She says she only needs to scream and others will come instead. Relic counters that and says she has not done that because she is curious. Simtal says that if he hurts her, Turban Ore will hunt him down. Relic says he's only there to talk, even though that's not what she deserves. Simtal is confused. Deserved? She's done nothing wrong. She doesn't even know him. And neither did Councilman Lim. And even the same could be said for Ore tonight but both paid the price for ignorance. Lucky for her to have missed the duel. It was nasty, but necessary. Ralph explains that Orr's contract to the Assassin's Guild is now canceled, and that call lives. You're fucked, Lady Simtal. Oh, and one last thing. Turban Orr is dead. Mic drop. Ralph leaves the room, closes the door behind him. Marilio watched reality sink into her. He left his dagger on the bed and walked out. He knew he'd be the last person to see her alive. In the hallway, he stopped and said, Maori, I'm not cut out for this. He had planned on reaching this point, but actually arriving to it was a whole different animal. He didn't know how he would feel when he got here. The thought of justice got in his way. He had become seduced by the thought of it. He didn't know what he had just lost. He felt regret. He was nearly overwhelmed. And again, he whispered to Maori, I think I'm lost. Am I lost? This section was deep. Deep as hell. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Just, I mean, you, I, I get the sense that Marilio was going to almost like relish in this. And it's like com- the complete opposite of that. You know, he's, it's like he feels sick about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, Lady Simitel, she's, you know, clearly got motivations, but it's not like she's a murderer or a rapist or, you know, anything, anything like that. It's not like she needs to be taken to jail or anything, but, you know, this is, this is purely just a, you know, Simitel used her money in her vagina to get call out of there. You know, there could be worse things. Pretty shitty of her to do, 
but there could be worse things. And I think that Marilio is, is battling between that state of mind, maybe. Yeah, I don't think it's, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. No. So you're interpreting that he left the knife on the bed because at this point, there's really no going back from her current situation. So the only option out is just to kill herself, which yeah, in it, itself I mean, is, is pretty sad. Yeah, it's that's shitty. And I think, you know, Relic and Marilio must know that. And that's, you know, kind of like I said, they must, I, I get the sense that they were going to be almost excited for it. And now they're kind of realizing what she's being forced into, you know, and it's well, right. There's not something to be celebrated. No. And also, I mean, the option for Lady Simital, right? Like, it's either kill herself or be reduced to a life that she has no idea about. Like, she's going to get kicked out. She's going to be, you know, I guess, maybe humiliated uh, amongst the nobles and those who are more well-off financially. And she's essentially going to be a commoner, right? Uh, poor has to work. And I mean, to her, life isn't worth living like that, which I think is really sad. So maybe that's also something that is weighing on their consciousness, consciousness a bit. It certainly could be. I mean, at least yep. she went out with a lay. That was insensitive. I'm sorry. Well, she just needs a cigarette now. She'll be golden. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, pretty depressing section. Uh, and, deep, you know, like you said, it, for sure. It's weird though, because like the whole story, you're 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 kind of in a similar boat. Like you're waiting for this justice to take place, and you almost kind of wonder if the justice will ever take place. And now that it's finally here to feel the way that you do uh, on the side of Marilio as you, you know, you end the section is, is pretty powerful uh, for the author to convey to its readers. Like it, it's just, it's magnificent and awesome the way that you can do that. It's like, it's like in, I don't know if you've ever seen the Pixar movie Up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first 10 minutes, I was bawling like an asshole. Yeah, it was uh, pretty good. So I, I feel like it, it just, it appeals appeals to the broader uh, audience emotion, like very well. So, but yeah, with that, I'm, I'm ready to move on. If you are. Yep. Yeah, we're uh, kind of wrapping it up here. You got your last section and then I got one more after that. Yep. Only two hours and 15 minutes later. <laughs> so it was a long chapter, but Crocus waited for his opportunity when the guards were distracted. He darted for the shadows between the first line of trees, seeing Chalice in her revealing Bargas costume, sitting at the garden fountain. With a stone in his hand, he tosses it into the fountain. This startles Chalice. She stands up, looking around, wiping droplets of water from her face. She sees Crocus gesturing desperately. With a backward glance, she ran to him. She squints at him and calls him Gorlis, 
as she's been waiting for him. Crocus freezes, and then Crocus lunges forward and puts his hand over her mouth and the other around her waist. Chalice struggled against him as he dragged her into the darkness. Crocus wonders what he is to do now. He just kidnapped Chalice. <laughs> Probably. He just kidnapped uh, Chalice. I, I would call that uh, acting without thinking. Uh, which this seems to be something that Crocus is, is uh, pretty good at at this point. Yeah, I think this was a bad move, though, for sure. Do you think that this is luck turning on him? I was literally just thinking that because I, I didn't think that at the time when I read it or going through the summaries, but now, I, as you were saying, I was like, oh, this is, this is where things go south. So I don't know how he's going to recover from this. And, and maybe that's the point. Maybe he's not going to. Yeah. Yeah. Bad decisions again. But I don't know if I don't remember who said it, but oh, Krupp. Yeah. Krupp earlier in the chapter was hoping that his luck didn't turn. And I feel like at that moment, it was kind of a little bit of foreshadowing because we were just revealed the whole pattern inside of his mind suddenly ending so but we could be wrong could be all yeah, part of Oban's plan it doesn't appear to be going in a good direction right now though no not at all it feels different than his other bad decisions and because he's still wanted I just I, I kind of feel like this is probably his worst decision he's made yeah and you know they're they're still looking for him for the high gallows, so yeah, yeah. This definitely doesn't help that situation. No, no, it does not. Just kind of uh, securing his spot, <laughs> right? Yeah, another. It was a really short section, but I don't really have anything else to talk about outside of his bad decision, <laughs> and right. maybe the fact that. She thinks he's someone else. I think that's kind of why, like, if, if she didn't say that, I don't think he would have kidnapped her. But I think it was just, like, he probably got mad in an instant and just kind of reacted. Where if she would have known who he was, they probably would have had a conversation instead. Yeah, I think you're right there. So is Gorlis, like, her lover then? Or maybe, like, someone she is attracted to? It very well could be. Okay, now I don't have anything else to say. Sorry. <laughs> it's all good, man. Well, we'll wrap this thing up here. Circle Breaker leaned against a pillar in the estate. The guest surrounded Orr's body. Empty threats filled the air. He tried to calm himself and thought to the Queen of Dreams that he was done now and he could rest. Lady Simtal was still missing and guests seemed more confused with her not around. He took one last look at the garden and all the guests before he made for the door. He came across a table with a fat man in a mask snoring. He moved past the gates in view and the freedom lay only just past in the streets of Jerusalem. Nothing would stop him now. He thought, I've done my part. Just another nameless stranger who couldn't run from the face of tyranny. Deerhood, take this man's shriveled soul. His dreams are over, ended by an assassin's whim. As for my own soul, well, 
you shall have to wait a while longer. So I, I, I find it a little ironic, you know, like Circle Breaker doesn't know who the eel is, but, you know, in just this chapter, he's walked right past him twice and didn't even know it. Right. And the eel has put himself in a food coma. Yeah. He's passed out on the floor at the end of a table. And then, you know, like I did not pick this up the first time I read it. Did not pick it up the second time I read it. And it was not until I was writing, you know, the summary for this where this came to me. Um, but the circle breaker has to be a god or an ascendant, something just with his, his, uh, you know, his, his sentence here. Um, I don't see how he couldn't be something more, you know, it, it reminds me of Cotillion kind of being, you know, inside Sari's body controlling that way. I, it has a similar feel this way. I don't know who, who's, in there, but they seem to have more of a, like a mutually respectful relationship because it's it doesn't seem like any either one is really fighting for control. Okay, I see where you're going. Symbiotic, that was the word I was looking for. Ah, uh, it makes sense. I mean, I don't, I, I'm kind of leaning on not aligning with you um i think that where he's going with this is taking this man's shriveled soul his dreams are over ended by an assassin's whim that is clearly that's that's a sentence talking about relic killing turban or so i think that what's happening here is there's a contrast between like turban or was essentially on his way to kill me or do something with me. So dear hood take turban or soul as his dreams are over as for my soul. You'll, you should have to wait because I, I wasn't the one who was killed, hmm. but I do see where you're going. I do see that. Like there's definitely this, this, the last two lines are really loaded. So I can see, I can see your perspective as well. Yeah, I, I can see yours too, but I guess we'll just, it's going to be one of those things we're probably going to have to wait and see which one of us is right. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I mean, there's also so much mystery around Circle Breaker. Like, I'm kind of doubting at this point if we're even going to, if he's even going to be revealed. But I, I do think we'll see. This book. No. But also, you know, we're, we're, we're like what 63-ish pages away from wrapping it up and like talk the younger hasn't been mentioned um the topper hasn't been mentioned in a while tatter sale hasn't really been mentioned in a while so yeah. it's like you know where are all these characters it just kind of seems like they've disappeared it's a good point we'll have to continue to March to the end of this book and, and wrap it up and get on to the next year and, and see where this ride takes us. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to read on. I'm excited to Definitely. see what happens after, you know, the aftermath of Turban Orr's death. 
So should be interesting. Yeah, and this approaching storm. So there's still definitely a lot of things that uh, are still building in in suspense. Yeah, there is. Yeah, I guess I don't have any final thoughts on this section. No, I, th- I think that's kind of a wrap. I think she's a wrap. Awesome. Awesome. Well, boy, it's been a long time coming. Um, I'm glad that we were able to find some time to crank out this beautifully written chapter. Yeah, it was good to get back to it for sure. It's I know we both missed it, so it feels good to start to get back into that groove. Mm-hmm. Yep. 100%. But, uh, yeah. I guess uh, we'll see you all next week. I promise the the normalcy and the release of episodes, our lovely audience um, and listeners, uh, we'll go back to normal. <laughs> hey, well, I mean, you're, you're, you're working on an episode now from a few weeks ago, getting that That's edited good. and... And we've got this one in the shoe here too, locked and loaded. So it'll be all right. Yeah. So there should be a couple for uh, for those that are listening to, I guess, binge on. I know it takes you some time to do the editing and, and get those done. And you're still getting unpacked and everything. So I wouldn't, uh, you know, when you have time, I wouldn't prioritize it over other things, I guess. All right, man. But I'm finding now that I don't have to do anything else at the other house, um, I won't be driving an hour to and from just to to wrap things up there. So that part that part is is complete and finalized. So we'll uh, I think I'll, I'll have a little bit more time to to get to editing. Awesome. Cool, man. Have a uh, good rest of your Saturday night here. And you do the same. We'll talk soon, buddy. Later, man. Bye.